This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Canada and India are playing a game of poker with no winner of in sight. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director of Foreign Affairs, National Security and Defense Canada at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, helps us make sense of the tensions between Canada and India. And are we going about it the right way? What is one thing you won't buy brand new? Thrifting expert and content creator Tyler Chanel tells us how she's created a business with thrifting and gives us some tips on how to find some thrifting steals and maybe some challenges of different ways to go about it. And on this day in 1994, one of the biggest TV shows ever debuted. We look back at Friends, the music of the 90s, and more with Flashback Friday on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. From the perspective that I see here, I will say this. I think this Prime Minister... Canada, India, international affair has exploded around the world in the news, by the way, is the biggest international affair since Russia invaded Ukraine. I don't think there's been another international incident that has been spoken about this much that I'm aware of since in the last year and a half. Jonathan Berkshire Miller is here. McDonald Laurier, um, global affair, politics and things. I actually have, here's a secret. I had to text Jonathan and say, hey, by the way, do you still do this part or do you just do that part? Because you do the whole world now. But the Indo-Pacific was your region before you took over the whole department. And so this was really your jam a year ago. Yeah, and unfortunately my jam now. (laughs) Yeah, still is, yeah. Okay, so um, the prime minister, for those who don't know, uh, says they have uh, substantial evidence or evidence like that that the government of India was involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen in Surrey three months ago. And cue the tsunami of international affairs. Go, Jonathan. (laughs) Well, thanks, Shane. I mean, I think it's a really shrewd observation. Well, thanks, of course, for having me on. It's always real fun to to chat about these issues together, um, even though they're they're dark and depressing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I would agree with your assessment that this this incident is one of the... um, one of the moments that I think is a gut check for a lot of us and a couple of reasons why. So you could, the narrowest viewpoint, so the the most sort of myopic view that you could have is that, well, this is a problem for Canada and India. And it's a big, big problem for Canada and India. And we haven't seen the the, the middle or the end of this, uh, this challenge, but it's much larger. And I'll tell you why. Um, India, obviously, one of the, the world's uh, is the world's most populous country, but also one of the world's rising economies, a top 10 trading partner for Canada. Um, but more importantly, when you think of the global West and especially our neighbor, uh, the United States, uh, Japan as another key power in the region, everyone has been wooing India in recent years. And there's a lot of rationales for that. But central to that is the fact that a growing India economically and also militarily could provide a counterweight to a very dis- disruptive and increasingly assertive and aggressive uh, Chinese presence in the region. So, yeah. so effectively, the idea that um, the illusions that potentially India could be brought into the mix uh, could be more like the West, um, while, while a flawed assumption in many ways, um, it now has a lot of, uh, of challenges to this, um, or at least it might seem that if these allegations are true. Um, that's why I think that 
the, the, the level of these public allegations is very, very risky. So I liken it to a, a poker game. You know, it seems that we have went in all in, if you're the Canadian side, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, against a much bigger and much more uh, well-endowed player in India. Um, and the, the frustrating thing about it is that I'm not even sure that we're sure of what hand we have. So, uh, you know, I'm not all about, um, you know, going to say that don't play poker all in, but you better be sure that you have a winning hand, number one, or the opposite side is going to fold under pressure. And I don't think either is going to happen here. So I don't think we've seen the end uh, to where this uh, saga is going to lead to. The race for India, um, is that a race for India or is that a race to keep China out of India? I think it's a bit of both. So I think, I mean, India and China have had, you know, decades long, you could centuries long sort of historical challenges. Um, you know, they have multiple territorial disputes, land uh, territorial disputes. So it's not that they had an affinity before. Um, but I think especially as India was not nearly as economically as strong uh, for many years, uh, India was a was a low uh, developed country. And uh, now it's 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 a, economy really is churning. Uh, it's able to push back against some uh, you know issues of Chinese coercion in the region, and align much more closely to that of the West. So if you think back to the Cold War days, uh, India it was a you know the biggest proponent of the non-aligned movement. They didn't want to choose uh, the Soviet Union, and they didn't want to choose the West. Um, what we're seeing now with India is a public India, which still says we're we're India, we're neutral. But then I would argue a private India, which is very heavily tilting towards the Western orbit due to those concerns on China. So these are the things that are potentially uh, at risk. And I think this is why you're seeing the Americans, for example, reacting very carefully to this. You know, they're not uh, having full throated support for Prime Minister Trudeau and saying, you know, we fully endorse this. They're saying we we look at concern with it, these allegations and we'll see what happens, hoping that, you know, what happens is not their worst fears. Have you seen anybody endorse this yet? Because I, as of my last look, and admittedly, I in the last couple of hours, I have not updated that. But I haven't seen anybody agree to this. In fact, the day after the Americans said they were doing this uh, four way with Japan, India and Australia to get into the Indo-Pacific region and that market more so too. That was the very next day in New York and, and Trudeau was there. Yeah, it's, I think it's a bit of a, both things are happening at the same time. So I found it interesting the day of the allegations, the uh, United States White House National Security Council, their sort of official statement was was expressing concerns, quote unquote. Um, but but the exact same day you have the Pentagon, which is the their, their lead uh, defense department, uh, releasing a, a statement about how important India is in a defense and security perspective. So clearly, um, you know, there's no massive shift here. Um, and I think it's understandable in many regards as well. Um, the, the wrinkle here will be that if, if the reports, recent reports are to be believed, that some of the intelligence and maybe the, the backbone of the intelligence that Canada is basing these accusations on came from other Five Eye members, um, potentially the United States. Um, and more, most likely the United States or the United Kingdom. And that's, uh, that's explosive. Um, because if that, uh, you know, if, if that intelligence was shared with Canada and then they're, they're fully aware of, of the depths of these allegations and how credible they are, that makes it even much more complex to, to extricate yourself. Hmm. Well, okay. So, but we're trying to get into that market in India. We didn't, because they wanted to stay away from China. It was the next place to grow. And where do we go from here? in growing in the world, especially if the other countries aren't saying, yeah, Canada, we've got your back. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be a big challenge. So, you know, as in, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, Shane, you know, I was working on the quote unquote Indo-Pacific and we've talked before in our, our sessions about what the Indo-Pacific is and this, this broad region scoping from, from Indian Pakistan all the way uh, to the Pacific Islands, uh, a massive geographical region with so many different economies. But the crux of it, without getting into the details, is that how do you have an Indo-Pacific without a relationship with with the Indo part, which is India right. and its Indian Ocean region? And, and effectively, I think that's basically at least the short-term future and potentially the medium-term future for Canada. I don't think that our allies have made that calculation, and I think that's why they've been so careful. They're still invested in you know India being too big to fail. But I think for the the Canadians, unfortunately, for the for the short term, have to get used to the fact that. The relationship with India and therefore uh, their Indo-Pacific approach is going to be very challenged. We've seen political dance before. There's been assertions in that green meeting with China that there was instructions to use kid gloves and be gentle and, and don't get too hard into politics over green things with China, which would seem backwards compared to what we've seen inside the Canadian politics. Maybe we just weren't supposed to find out about that. But then you see this hardball thrown at India right after the prime minister leaves India. I mean, does this seem, as you do the international foreign affairs and all those things, as wildly inconsistent as it seems to me? Yeah, and I think this is the the worry and the challenge that a lot of people have. Number one, obviously, if India did this, this is an you know, egregious act of uh, infringing on our sovereignty, illegal extrajudicial killing on a, you know, on a foreign territory and especially one of that of a potential partner and like-minded democracy that being said uh, if we read uh, very clearly and legally what the prime minister has said there is no evidence uh, in a definitive sense that that india has done this from we we know that there's there's credible quote-unquote credible intelligence um for potential links um, but these, uh, you know, comparing this, for example, to the Chinese side or the Russian side, where we've had not just one case, but repeated cases that are uh, that are proven of, of foreign interference. Yes, they may not uh, be up to the level of, of murder, um, but we know that these states are consistently acting on a wide uh you know, array of, of levels to interfere and influence our democracies. So I do worry about that. I worry about, you know, India being sort of brazenly thrown in the same boat, where I think the, the, the level of threat is far different. So your think tank colleagues, all you PhDs that like to talk about hypotheticals around the world and, and what is possible and try to find solutions to find common ground to make it all workable, have has there been such an inflammatory uh, drama in such a, a long period of time? Now, I'm going to uh, subtract a couple of things. Khashoggi, uh, the guy went missing. Um, Russia, Ukraine. Russia did cross the border and invade Ukraine. So you can take those inflammatory situations out, the drama around it, and the politicking, the political theater that goes with it. This seems to me to be so far out there without a specific event. Um, we, we must not see this often. Do we just not hear about it? Yeah. So, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, the irritants in the, the Canada-India relationship on this specific issue have been there for a long time. And so this is not a new thing. Um, that being said, the spillover to this sort of accusation, you're right, is unprecedented. 
And I think it's unprecedented in a lot of ways. I mean, number one, when you talk about what the Saudis or, or what the Russians are doing or the Chinese are doing, you're, you know, even though the Saudis are quote unquote, you know, allies at sometimes, um, effectively they're authoritarian states uh, that we, our expectations and our, our sort of thermometer of what we expect them to do is much lower. Uh, India, especially in recent years, even when we know that it's imperfect, is the world's largest democracy. We talked about its you know, quadrilateral alignment with uh, Japan, Australia, and the US. Um, many, even in a Five Eyes perspective, which is the intelligence sharing group with Anglo countries, have even talked about India as that sort of aspirational, maybe not six eye, but but one of those partners in the, the, the inner club, basically, with uh, maybe with Japan, South Korea, France, Germany, so that in that special club, there's been some who even advocated for including India into the the G7, into a, a larger sort of G10 concept. So this is why it's such a shock, is that India was sort of considered, maybe not in the inner club, but basically very close to that club. Um, so if this uh, you know incident actually happened like this, it would be a huge shock to all the democracies. When we talk about what's going on in the world, um... India has come out now and said Canada is a terrorist safe haven. India has pulled student visa applications and stuff, closed the offices. The response has been pretty quick. Is this, and it, I believe it was about three months, I think really before China started to put in real measures, right, to uh, get at Canada from the Huawei and the two Michaels and all the things that started to happen. This seems to be real quick. Like there's not a, there's not a lot of waiting going on here. Do we need to be reminded as Canadian citizens that are very well protected from what's really happening around the world, that this is what real life starts to look like? Many countries have assassinated people they don't like, right? It, uh, if India did do it, they wouldn't be the only ones that have done it of, of, of recent. Um, it's a, right? I mean, there's a long list of countries that have. Is this a reminder that, you know, as you watch from, from your desk of, you know, foreign affairs and geopolitics that this is the way life is well there's a lot of real politics going on for sure and i mean one of the lessons i would think uh you know it should be a lesson anyways in, in intelligence collection and especially when it comes to this level of public accusation in particular if it's not an adversary is you have to be sure and that and that's the sense is that um you know as we mentioned at the beginning of this intelligence is not evidence uh, and uh, I think that there was a bit of amateurness in, in the way that this announcement, whether it was done for, you know, cynically, some say for political reasons, or whether it was done just out of, uh, you know, not being patient and not letting the process play itself out. Um, we know the Indians potentially stonewalled uh, the Canadian officials that went there before, but that's what India has been doing for a long time. It doesn't mean that you don't persistently try, you, you look at other levers. For example, our relationship with the United States, which I think we did try to leverage before this announcement, I think we could have leveraged that even more uh, privately, um, rather than coming out here before having a slam dunk case and saying, look, you know, India has committed this crime. So I think the, the process I have a lot of issues with. Um, the intelligence, I'm not sure because I don't, I'm not privy to it. Right. We, uh, is there any benefit? I mean, you guys have seen this with think tanks. You've studied it. You've studied what governments do and politicians do and how countries are bickering in the, in the foreground and doing trade deals in the background. They're friendly in the foreground and fighting quietly in the background and arguing and having backroom meetings. These things happen all the time is, 
this just, should we be really looking at this as normal fodder between countries? Because it doesn't seem like that. I realize you said that about evidence is uh, different. What did you say? You said evidence is different than? Intelligence, yeah. Intelligence, yes, right. Thank you. Uh, so that to me leads me to believe that this is not normal. Yeah, I, and I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, and I think that in order for us to going forward on this, we're going to have to be a lot more mature about this. We're going to have to be a lot more empathetic, a lot more understanding, um, and and really understand that in the course of international relations, uh, there are periods of where patience is necessary. Um, and I just don't think in this situation that we've 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 understood that correctly. As far as the positive impacts of this, how the, there could be any beneficial parts. I mean, cynically, again, you could say politically, there might be some positivity, at least in the short term, um, you know, looking, uh, appearing as a strong leader. As far as interests of the country, the only way I could see this as positive is if this was actually uh, a proven allegation, this would be a line in the sand where Canada could say not just to India to, to harm India, but to other adversaries that look, you know, we're going to publicly call this out and they better stay consistent too with, with other forces. But in all other terms, this is a public deficit as far as interests. I mean, trade interests, uh, you know, potentially security interests in the region. I mean, I think we've, there's a lot of zeros and not many ones. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to add up, like aside from the fact of drawing a line in the sand. So, uh, all the countries play nice in our sandbox. There really is no benefit to Canadians even really knowing, frankly, that it that it's there there's some things i guess i subscribe to that we just don't need to know as canadians and let the professionals do what the what the professionals do jonathan berkshire miller is here with us now jonathan just got back from vietnam he was traveling for work and i texted him on monday and i was like welcome back <laughs> how's this for you your week has been crazy um remember the old days when there was a pandemic and we got to visit all the time because you were always oh, yeah. at home those were the good old days those were the good old days. I missed that in some ways. I hate to say you missed the pandemic, but uh, I'm nostalgic for it. Now, you you have more work coming up. You're going to do more things and, and do your global affair traveling around type um, smart people things that you do. Uh, do you go into it differently, even though you're not going to India or anything in the near future? But do you go into it differently or do you insert some question lines, agenda items just to probe your colleagues internationally when you do go to other countries, is say if you go to Europe or anything like that, that's not directly related, but obviously going to be paying attention? Yeah, I think, I mean, what we try to do in this business, and I mean, so we're a think tank that focuses on public policy. So we're, we're there not to replace the government or, or take the job of them, but we do want to provide creative advice to them. Uh, things that basically um, they're not thinking about, they don't have the bandwidth to think about. So when, you know, when we do conferences abroad, when we have those engagements, uh, we try to have those conversations that maybe are a little bit more challenging for them to have, try to think about certain potential solutions. So, I mean, an example like this is is a prime prime time example where um, we, we have to unfortunately be thinking about things that is going to be very, very difficult for the two governments at this point. I mean, I don't even know how much they're going to be talking together, uh, but we do have those links, whether it's with, uh, you know, Indian think tank. Indian academics, uh, very strong links. And I think that, that those discussions need to continue uh, on how to weather uh, these storms. Do you uh, PhD people send emojis back and forth after these things happen? Like, <laughs> yeah, We like emojis, yeah. We're not too pretentious. We like emojis. My kids are teaching them too. Not too pretentious. I love it. Thanks so much for the candor and thanks for being here. That's great, Shane. It's always a pleasure. It's fun. It's fun. 
This is the Shift Podcast. Thrifting. It turns out Vancouver has like the most of the thrift shops. Edmonton also comes up on the list too. We'll get those details coming up here, but it did cause some conversation here on the Shift about how do we find the deals? We've shared so many different perspectives on the show. We've shared the perspective of fast fashion and how quite dreadful it is uh, for the, the environment and economics and work conditions. Really great for price, but people say they care, but then they still go by fast fashion. And even our guest who is works as an advocate against that stuff, even he said, look, there's, sometimes there's a time and a place for a cheap t-shirt that you can wear and it, it just gets the job done. The question is, is are we being not so much in love with fast fashion, but can we already reuse and take care of and take advantage of what we already have? And this is where we're going to take this conversation. Tyler Schnell is here. Tyler's down in LA and an influencer online. Tyler takes looks and puts them back together with the core of it being thrifted. Now there's a lot of fashion folks online, Tyler, that are like, here's my latest finds and here's my affiliate link so you can go buy this t-shirt from the expensive t-shirt store and all those things. You've chosen the harder way to do this, which is to show people how to shop and not necessarily just capitalize on every t-shirt sale that's out there possible. So that to me says that you must love it or believe in it or something like that, because you're not taking fast cash so much as the way that other influencers are as easily as they do. So why why do you love this so much? I think it started with childhood. Um, my mom used to take me thrifting all the time when I was little. And of course, I didn't appreciate it back then. But as I got older, that was my bonding time to spend with my mom. Um, and she kind of taught me the ropes of the trade. She taught me how to thrift, how to look for the best deals. She showed me that I could get really quality pieces at the thrift store. Um, and after I found out thrifting, I was like, all my outfits were way better than any outfit I could have bought at the mall because your dollar goes a lot further at the thrift store. So I just wanted to share that with others because I love it. It's so much fun. It's like a treasure hunt. Um, so I want other people to enjoy the treasure hunt too. It is a treasure hunt and that's the thing, right? I mean, some people will say thrifting is amazing. Others will say it's terrible today. It's corrupt now because online trends and people go cherry pick all the good stuff to just to capitalize and make money again. That greed factor kicks in. But when you find that one unique piece that is all about you, fits your jam, you know, you get to fly your freak flag a little bit with your tight pants or whatever it is that you want to do. That must feel really great when not only you can do it for yourself, Tyler, but when somebody might say, because of your your social uh, presence, look what I found. And that must be quite the reward for you. It is. That's the best feeling. I love it when my followers say I went thrifting for the first time or they send me their fines and they tell me how little they spent on some really quality pieces. Um, that just brings me so much joy. And I want people to feel a little less intimidated going to the thrift store because if you're not a thrifting expert, it can be really scary and really overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. There's some little tips and tricks that I share to make it so anyone can find a good deal. Well, and thrift shops, while some of them are still all about mothballs and, and musty smells, it has become a very boutique experience. Um, there's also consignment stores, which is probably another way. It's not really thrifting, but still it is reusing. And it's, it's let's call it thrifting adjacent. And um, 
And so there are ways to go around there. So for inspiration, Tyler, we did dig into uh, Macklemore's Thrift Shop, which is happens to be one of my favorite songs of all time. And Ryan, with whom you've spoken, uh, one of his favorites of all time. So he talks about in that song, he says, with $20 in my pocket, how he's going thrifting. Inflation, all the things going on right now, thrifting is a great solution for some of those problems. Can you even go thrifting with $20 in your pocket anymore? You can, but you have to be really strategic about where you go. Um, some of the thrift stores, like you said, they're more consignment stores. Those are going to be a lot pricier, but there are a lot of thrift stores, specifically like charity shop thrift stores or mom and pop thrift stores, some of the lesser known names in the thrifting space. You can find deals he, even here in LA. Um, they have a thrift store that's more of a vintage store. So during the week, it's a really high price. But on Sundays, they have a dollar day sale. So if you find a local thrift store in your area, maybe check out those special sale days because you can definitely find a full outfit for $20 if you look in the right place. Okay. Uh, continuing in that song, he talks about paying $50 for a t-shirt from a thrift shop and how bad that is or from paying $50 retail. Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to call him out right now because he's going to explain it when we're, you and I are finished chatting. Ryan's going to tell us all about his Indiana Jones t-shirt and how it's authentic from the show and release first release all these things. So he has a $90 t-shirt that is a thrifted t-shirt. And that to me seems so backwards, but it is a collector's piece. And so I'm going to allow the space of sometimes it's not necessarily about bargain hunting as much as it is could be about collector's piece and really unique. Yes, so for me, I'm all about the bargains. I want the cheap piece. If it's like $15, I'm like, ooh, that's too much. That $15 is like my price, as high as I'll go for the price. But my husband, on the other hand, he's more into streetwear and street style. So he'll spend like $100 on a really hard to find um, item. Like for example, I think the Travis Scott line had some streetwear t-shirts that are impossible to find. And he found one for like a hundred bucks at the flea market. So he's like, this is a great deal. So did you cry a little bit though? I was like, did no. you give one of those? Why did I marry you? Things he's like, wag your finger. Yeah, basically. But it's funny because there's different types of thrifters. There's more of, you have to know what you're looking for. I'm looking for a bargain. He's looking for, you know, that special unique piece that no one's going to have. So it right. just depends what you're into. Well, and I appreciate that. I appreciate not wanting to look like that's one of the reasons why I don't wear brand names on my clothes because I don't want to have the same shirt on somewhere that somebody else will have. Like a de-branded version of something to me is far more appealing than wearing the same old, same old. I mean, I'm guessing that in your world, you don't walk into a neighborhood or community social gathering and find people wearing what you're wearing. Never, never. And I, it's one thing that's cool about thrifting is I feel like it really forces you to find your style because when you go to the mall, everything's kind of laid out where this where this this is cool this is trending but at the thrift store because it's a treasure hunt you're really digging for those pieces and kind of learning your own style you're learning what you like um and it might not be in trend but that's okay let me ask you a question about fitness and i know this is weird i mean you're you've got a handsome husband you have a family and all those things but because you're thrifting you don't get size choice and here's what I've noticed, and this just might be me being insecure, and I'll, I'll own it. But when I go into a thrift store, I am a strange size. I'm six foot one, I'm 230 pounds, I wear a 29 inch inseam. I have short legs, 
and a big long body. And for me to go into a thrift store and find clothes, I'm either going to really get them because they're weird sizes, or I'm not going to get them because they're common sizes for things like hoodies or whatever. But what I notice is I'm very aware of my size. If I go to the mall, there's five different sizes to choose from. Who cares? Don't ever pay attention. Like, oh, just get a different size. I find that I am far more aware of myself as a good thing because I pay attention to it. Do you find that that contributes to your overall, like maybe mental well-being, how you care for yourself? Because you know that, you know, this is all part of who you are and going into this and you get reminded real quick when the pants that you love are three sizes too tight and you're trying to make it work, but it is not okay. Yeah, a little bit because um, I recently had a daughter and she's seven months old today, actually. Oh my goodness. I was oh, trying to find, <laughs> yeah, she's a cute little one, but I was trying to find maternity items. And before, like I've always been a size small and like, I've been able to pretty much fit into anything at the thrift store. But when I was a maternity size, it was so much harder. And I was so much more conscious about, you know, what to buy and what to fit in. I was more size conscious. Um, so I feel like it made it a little harder to thrift. Um, and different, I first, different experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was a totally different experience. Um, but now that I'm in postpartum, I feel like I'm still not at the size I was before. So even then I I'm definitely like, okay, maybe I should hit the gym, you know, and get back to. Being yeah. And I, I, I say embrace your body, right? Like I'm yeah. not saying that you should go back to this size or that size, or I should be a certain size or you should be a certain size. What I am saying is that when we become aware of what we like or don't like about our bodies, it also enables us to be like, you know what? I don't like this part. Um, I'm going to go do this or go for a walk. Or you might say, you know what? I really kind of like this part now that's changed, but we become aware of it. And that becomes such an exciting part. I think to shopping is finding clothes that work, not only that fit. Yes. And then one thing is if you're between sizes, it's a pain to shop at the mall and spend all that money on a size that you might not be in a month from now or, or a year from now. So thrifting is definitely great because you don't have to spend as much money. You can, you know, buy those pairs of jeans that you might not fit a year from now, but they mm. might be five bucks. And yeah. I have a reel on my Instagram page where thrifting is a good workout. That digging <laughs> through those racks, yeah, my arm is pretty good. strong from that. Look at those big, the big pipes on our video call. So, but you do this a little differently with your socials. This is where it's fun. And I, I'm going to take your challenges that you do and suggest that other people listen very carefully to the different challenges that you have going on inside your socials. Those socials and the things you get up to could allow us people who go shopping the opportunity to maybe go about our shopping differently. One of the challenges, and if I've misunderstood this, please clarify, is that you give yourself, say, a time limit. Because you can spend hours, you get tangled up, then you get sort of bummed out. Or if you a specific budget, if I, I'm going to do this for $30 and this is what I need, or I'm going to do it in five minutes, but I got to get in and got to get out. Like you have created some of these different challenges of different ways to shop, which could be very appealing for people who find the doldrums of digging through clothes to not be really that great of an experience. So what have you come up with that that maybe could change the way we look at going through it? Yeah, so I have two challenges I do right now. One is called Trends in 10. So I give myself 10 minutes to find all of the different trends for right now, the fall. Um, for example, red is trending. So I'll try to find as many red items as I can. Um, and it just makes it fun. It makes it like if you bring a friend with you, um, see who can find the most trends in a time, you know, the time frame. 
Or my other challenge I have is mannequin matchup, where I go to a popular store in the mall, I take a look at the mannequins, and then I recreate the looks at the thrift store. So that's so much fun because that's definitely a challenge. It's really um, getting creative, getting inspired by some of the items that you see at the mall, but trying to find it for less. Um, it's a lot of fun when you can get close to that original look that you saw. It's very rewarding. We all regret not buying one piece. What is one, the first one that comes to mind, try to describe it for us, is one thing that you didn't take it and you really ever since have regretted not grabbing it. Because there was a blazer once that I wanted. It was like a purple velour. It was amazing. And I was like, yeah, but I just don't need it. And so I never did buy it. You know how many times since then, and this has been probably almost 10 years, I've been like, God, I wish I had that blazer right now. Is there something that comes to mind for you, the, uh, the Miss Gem that you bailed on and should have taken? Yes. So for me, I'm really into home decor. And I went to a Goodwill um, in Orange County recently, and they had a beautiful uh, like coffee table from Restoration Hardware. And I was like, who would donate this? get rid of this but i didn't have the space for it i live in a 600 square foot apartment um but the price was really good and it was such a discount and restoration hardware is an amazing brand so i still think about that piece to this day but i don't think it would have fit in my car even if i had the space but i right. definitely whoever got that they sure got a great find I love it. Tyler, shout out your uh, socials. We'll put this up on our Facebook group uh, for our audience here. We call them shift heads so they can link and see your stuff too. But what's, uh, what's the one access point that they should go to? If you visit my website, it's www.thriftsandtangles.com. I'm also on Instagram and YouTube under the same name, Thrifts and Tangles. Thrifts and Tangles is what it is. Uh, thank you so much for the insight and this. Happy to share the news. I love your love affair for it. This is really cool. I feel a little inspired to go out and Maybe go looking for some items. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, send me whatever thrift finds you get. I want to know. I want to know how much money you saved. This is the Shift Podcast. We are celebrating 1994 on the Shift. Why are we selling 1994? Well, this week launched first biggest of all time could be and that is friends. You've made many friends on Thursday night. Now meet Joey. You need anything, you can always come to Joey. Me and Chandler live right across the hall. He's away a lot. Joey, stop hitting on her. It's her wedding day. What? Like there's a rule or something? Friends, Thursdays this fall on NBC. All right, so there you go. It's the Friends and the launch of Friends, by the way, here on The Shift. In the early 1990s, Friends co-creators David Crane and Marta Kaufman wrote a seven-page pitch for a new sitcom entitled Insomnia Cafe, which, by the way, is a really good reminder that sometimes it's really important to just get started on a project. You never know where it'll go. You might not have it right the first time, but you never know where it'll go. In addition to the different title, the plot itself was quite different from what came to be known as friends. For example, Ross and Rachel weren't the key relationship. Instead, Joey and Monica were supposed to be the love interests. And that one didn't pan out at all. Although I always thought Joey and Phoebe should have got together. I felt like that would have been, you know, the, such a good one. Also, not to mention, who would have thought that Joey would have been the actor 
that carried um, Matt LeBlanc would have been the character, the actor that was the most successful after that on TV because he had that other show and it was went on for years. And uh, was it Matt LeBlanc? Is that Joey? That's him, yeah? Yeah. Um, I have no idea. I've never seen an episode of Friends. Oh, my, no. Really? Yeah, no. No. I don't do laugh track shows. I can't even really watch Seinfeld. Yeah. Really? It completely takes me out of it. Completely takes me out of it. Why? Because, okay, so the laugh track, I think, is weird. So, okay, let me show you. And I'm going to show you this. I have seen segments of a Friends episode. John, it's the clip outside of this one here, this chunk. So to to see why I feel uncomfortable watching shows with laugh tracks, I found this. This is a scene from Friends. I don't know the context, but it's the laugh track has been replaced with just one dude laughing. Hey guys. Hey. Hey. All right. Here's the ring. Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. <laughs> Uh, any ideas for the bachelor party yet? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you start handing out wedding rings and planning bachelor parties, don't you have to decide who your best man's going to be? Oh, it's awkward. It's awkward, it's awkward. <laughs> sort of already asked Chandler. What? He got to do it at your first wedding. Joey, I, I figured you'd understand. I mean, I, I've known him a lot longer. Come on, Ross. Look, I, I don't have any brothers. I'm never going to get to be a best man. You can be the best man when I get married. I'm never going to get to be a best <laughs> It's just like the laugh track I just think is so unnecessary and like forces me to laugh, which is why I found that funny. I, I, I so who cares? They're it. funny. It's a good show. The laugh track is there. They shot it in front of an audience. So even I though. I do love that part of it. That part's cool. Right. They did. So I think that's all right. Anyway, um, Friends is our inspiration here for flashing back and um you know for the sake of uh, you know being thorough i suppose we should probably do the right friends i remember because i probably I mean, the biggest theme song for a tv show ever i'd say this hey eh? yeah oh absolutely uh the rembrandts is the band uh and they were a band before this and they i like this show was so big when it came out. I was living in Red Deer going to college. And I was DJing in the bars. And, you know, there was Mortimer's, Mort's, um, Sambuca Sam's, Branley's. That's where we always played at back in the day in Red Deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Darcy and Rudy. And we, like, we would play this in the bar in the middle of the <laughs> night. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's the most 1990s thing and everyone I've clapped. ever heard. And I love like, it. Everybody would clap. Like, the whole bar would clap. Like, this was this, this show was out for a year, and it was new, and we would play the song. And the whole bar would go bananas and sing along to it. It was so good. And then everyone started getting their hair cut, like Rachel. Right? So, I don't know, man. It was a big deal. I The laugh track for me, I, I, I've never thought. It's interesting that's the perspective that you have on it. Never once has occurred to me what would this show sound like without a laugh track, or did I even notice or care? I, yeah, uh, it's uh, it, it well, it doesn't really happen often anymore. It's kind of it might come back, you know, in like a cycle, but it's very much if you rewatch those old shows, they all had them. The the yeah, film in front of the audience part is the really cool thing there. 
some uh, there are people that claim and that the actual overlay laugh tracks are still some of the same ones that they've reused and reused show after show after show as well. Oh, I'm sure. Cool. Mm-hmm. After NBC bought the pilot, the title became Friends Like Us. NBC president Warren Littlefield came up with another title that was also considered Across the Hall. By the time they shot it, the title they had switched again to Six of One. When the show premiered on September 22nd, 1994, they finally landed on simply Friends. Friends received acclaim throughout its run, becoming one of the most popular television shows of all time. The series was nominated for 62 Primetime Emmy Awards, winning the Outstanding Comedy Series Award in 2002 for its eighth season. Our inspiration this week, 1994. That is 30, 29 years ago. Whoa. I had there was, yeah. yeah, it might have even been on the shift heads page where somebody posted this meme. If it was you or you saw it there, uh, I salute you. It really got my attention. Somebody had posted seeing this flashback Friday that there something along the lines of the comment was, you know, someone said something about 20 years ago, and I was thinking, you know, 20 years ago, like early 80s, and then I realized 20 years ago was 2003. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I love it. Very cool. It is Flashback Friday here. It's The Shift. We will get to more of your thrifting conversation in just a couple of seconds. As we like to flashback, a couple of old commercials, as we love to do. Ryan has found a very, very dramatic commercial for the best-selling car of 1994. An hour each way. But somehow in my Taurus, I don't mind. I've never liked storms. Now I don't really notice them much. Seems like everything's getting more streamlined. Wish I could say the same for myself. For so many people, for so many reasons, Ford Taurus, the best-selling car in America. The Ford Taurus was the best-selling car in 1992, 93, 94, 95, and 96, or as my mom would call it, what happened to six in a row? Um... Yeah, and if you were a kid in 1994, you grew up around some pretty amazing toys, like the Power Rangers. When even Megazord isn't powerful enough, the mighty Morphin Power Rangers summon Dragon Zord and Titanus, the motorized carrier Zord. They morph with Megazord to form the ultimate battle machine, Ultra Zord. Say, who's watching where we're going? Huh? Not me, I'm not. Uh-oh. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, too hot to handle. All right, Flashback Friday here. It's The Shift. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Okay, we are going back to 1994. I'm loving this. I I had no idea, by the way, um, that some of these things were there. Um, Oh, I scrolled too far. Way to go, Shane. Whoa. Um, Okay, songs in 1994. There was some good ones, right? You and I were talking about these... um, some of these songs because they're they're literally like some dynamite ones. You had a couple of favorites, right? What were yours? I did. Well, uh, the big I love '90s big bass dance music. I think it's some of the best music to dance to. It holds up and like "Rhythm of the Night" by Corona. Yeah. This is the rhythm of the night. Yeah. Well, that being remade goes to show the uh, with uh, David Guetta this last year. Um. This is an iconic dance song. House technically from back in the day. 
but this is iconic. This is as iconic as it gets, I would say. Um, but there are a couple other ones that are equally as impactful today. I mean, there's Bon Jovi always, the zombie, uh, zombie with the cranberries. Mm-hmm. Um, Rod Stewart was still making music back then, but there's this, not to be forgotten. Ace of Base and the sign in there as well. That's interesting because this one you'll still hear pop up in the old radio once in a while. I like it. Yep. Um, Big Mountain. Hard to believe this was, I would, you'd think it was a lot earlier than that. One of my personal favorites was Inakamozi. I love playing the song. And here comes the hot stepper. 1994 is our flashback Friday here on The Shift. We love all this music. This is so cool. Um, speaking of favorites, I'll be selfish here. And there's a couple of, this is another one that's, that was house music, but it's, uh, it, it, we call it dance music today, but back then it was very much house music. Um, Crystal Waters and 100% Pure Love. This was huge. Mm. Right. And speaking of dance music, um, There it is. Thank you, computer. You have to imagine young Ryan O'Donnell in a go-go cage at a bar. Oh, yeah. This would be a glasses get broken dancing. This, uh, you know what else was this year? Was Sweet Dreams, La Bouche? Yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of music. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because, like, I was... I, I imagine my parents were listening to it when I was an infant. Like, literally, I can't remember it. Mm-hmm. And I was born not long after this, right? So yeah. it's got to be genetically imprinted in my brain to dance to it this could music. Be. could be. Some of these. And Gen Z likes this, too. Everybody likes this. Mm-hmm. Your parents were dancing on my dance floor in Red Deer to these ones. I My dad had a Much Music Greatest Hits uh, 19, CD much with dance, song 1994. on it. Yeah. Yeah, and I used to replay it all at the time just to listen to the song. Return to Innocence, Enigma. Like, these songs are great. Actually, uh, Rednecks got themselves in the news with Oliver Anthony Music. Uh, it's a conversation we're having next week here as this guy's written this song basically about Don't Trust the Men in Richmond. And it's taken over. It's it's a huge song. And um, he was got booked to open up for the Rednecks, which is weird. And he canceled out of the show when he found out how much the tickets were going to be. So I still didn't know that Rednecks was the kind of group that would actually still do shows. <laughs> There's been a weird revival of like Aqua and um, Eiffel 95, is what they were called. The, mm-hmm. the I'm Blue band. Uh, those yeah. artists doing like group tours where they get together to play their one head wonders. Vanga Boys as well with like the that song. Yeah, Eiffel 65, I think is what I mean, yeah. 65 that's it but i'm blue that one got a resurgence too with david Guetta. so that that's that's a fair ball mm-hmm. and one of my favorite like this list goes on and on by the way beastie boys sabotage is on there weezer's on there yeah. aerosmith is on there um there's some really straight boys to men is on there i'll make love to you that was a huge song like the list goes on and on the circle of life the lion king song that's elton john that's on there too and there's one of my favorites which is way less popular but one of my favorites of all time which is uh, Us Three and Cantaloupe, Flip Fantasia. See, I love this stuff back in the day. So good. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.